people think topsoil is just dirt, and it is not, okay? There's a difference between soil and dirt. Yes, they're both ground, <laughs> but, but they are not the same. Okay, you cannot grow a plant in dirt. You can grow a plant in soil, but you can grow a plant in dirt if you spray nitrogen on it, fixed nitrogen, and add a you know a few extra you know things like Miracle Grow. That's true. You can do that. The question is: Is the plant that grows in soil the same as the plant that grows in dirt with Miracle Grow? And the answer is no. It's not. We think it is. Okay, the food industry acts like it is, but it's not. I'm Ben Grenell, part of the early startup team here at Levels. We're building tech that helps people to understand their metabolic health. And along the way, we have conversations with thought leaders about research-backed information so you can take your health into your own hands. This is a whole new level. When it comes to food production, we often think about the processing of the food, what happens to it before it goes on the shelf. Well, when you go upstream as far as you can, you get into this idea of big agriculture. You get into the idea of processing food at its earliest stage. Well, when you think about the implications of it, you get into this idea of the principal agent problem. You get into the idea of moral hazard. You get into the idea of the people that are incentivized to make the food don't necessarily have the lens on the downstream implications of what it will do for consumers, what it does from a health perspective, what it does from a food systems perspective, an ecological perspective, climate change, the list goes on. So Dr. Rob Lustig, one of the advisors to Levels and author of Metabolical Fat Chance Hacking of the American Mind, he and I sat down and we discussed this idea of big agriculture. We discussed the idea of food processing and some of the downstream implications that come with it. We talked about things like monoculture. We talked about regenerative farming and what consumers can do about it when things are a little bit out of their control. People sometimes might feel in the dark about these things that happen within the food system. The important thing is to understand that these things can happen and what people can do and how they can think about the choices they make as it relates to the food they consume. It's always fun talking with Rob. Very much appreciate his time. It's a great conversation. Here's where we kick things off. We talked last time about big everything. We went deeper into big sugar. But there's also, when we talk about metabolic health, metabolic health is very much this upstream concept in health and wellness, where you think of all the downstream implications that happen. Well, what's further upstream in the food system, or like the furthest upstream, is this idea of getting into production. And when we think about companies that are involved at the production, not food processing, but more in agriculture, you look at them and you go, hmm, BASF, Bayer, DuPont, and you're like, I'm pretty sure those are chemical companies or they make, right? They're, they're companies that are non-traditional when you think of agriculture and you have a heuristic of John Deere. So I thought it would be good to go into this idea of how some 
products get into the food production system to begin with or some things like insecticides and then take it from there? Understood. You know, ultimately, there are the growers and then there are the helpers, as it were, the helpers to grow. And the growers, we actually don't know their names. They're very much, you know, uh, small groups for the most part. It's the helpers of the growers that are, you know, sort of the interesting ones because, you know, they've got specific products that end up being incorporated into our food that we don't necessarily know because, after all, there's no logo on the front. Uh, and, you know, the reason there's no logo on the front is because all of the things have been, quote, generally recognized as safe by the government. So we, quote, don't need to know, as it were. Is that, and that's, that's where the rubber hits the road in terms of this. Um, you know, we're talking, uh, we're not talking about, you know, um, uh, mom and pop farms. We're not even talking about, um, uh, you know, international harvester or John Deere, you know, that help produce the food through, um, through cultivation. We're talking about, you know, uh, the groups of, uh, uh, companies that, uh, add something or subtract something. And those, those, uh, companies are known to us, you know, as quote, you know, sort of chemical companies uh, for the most part, we're talking about, um, uh, Monsanto. We're talking about um, BASF, as you said. We're talking about um, Bayer, who bought Monsanto. We're talking about Syngenta in Europe. Uh, these are companies that make products that then either are uh, uh, used to uh, change the food in some fashion or to uh, prevent its uh, degradation. And when we say prevent degradation, we're usually talking about either herbicides or pesticides. Now, to some extent, we've been able to increase productivity in the food system because we've had decreased loss. Um, you know, the locusts don't, you know, kill off the wheat fields anymore. All right. And, you know, that I guess in one way is good because you can feed a lot more people and you can feed a lot more people cheaply when you don't have a, a problem with either wastage or um, spoilage or uh, destruction of crops. So, you know, that has contributed to, you know, the U.S. being the behemoth in, uh, in, uh, uh, food production that that we've become. Uh, you could make an argument that that's a, a good thing. And from an economic standpoint, I would guess that that's true. The question, what's the downside of that? Well, let's talk about the downside of that. It starts actually in World War II. And it starts with the fact that we had a problem with typhus and we had a problem with uh, malaria. And we were losing troops, you know, to these, you know, terrible infectious diseases in the field. And so we had to basically clear, uh, you know, the uh, uh, large swaths of, um, of land from vegetation. And 
you know, back in the 1920s, I believe it was. Actually, I think it was actually produced first in 1879. But in the 1920s, uh, you know, this uh, new product called DDT came along. And in 1939, it started being applied to uh, uh, World War II uh, vegetation to try to help the uh, uh, American soldier. And it was very effective in keeping the typhus uh, uh, and uh, 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 problem uh, down significantly during World War II. I mean, World War I, we didn't have it, and it was a huge issue. World War II, you know, we had other issues, but, you know, that wasn't one of them. Uh, the, the fact of the matter is uh, that led after the war to DDT starting to be used for getting rid of vegetation, you know, or in, as an insecticide, virtually everywhere. And in fact, the guy who brought DDT to the war, Paul Herman Mueller, won the Nobel Prize in 1948 for the application of DDT to this. So obviously, somebody thought this was something good. If you get a, if you win a Nobel Prize for it, well, you know, it had its downside. And it wasn't until 1962 that we even realized there was a downside. And so this stuff was basically sprayed willy-nilly over, you know, the entire, um, you know, cropland of the United States in an attempt to try to uh, reduce spoilage. Um, well, then Rachel Carson came along and said, uh, you know, <laughs> this is causing a problem. And, you know, it was causing a problem in terms of cancer. It's caused a problem in terms of fertility. It's caused a problem because DDT is an estrogen. Okay. And it doesn't take much to be an estrogen. All it takes is two hydroxyl groups, 22 angstroms apart. There are a lot of compounds in our environment that are estrogens. There are a lot of compounds that are made by chemical companies that are estrogens. Uh, BPA, bisphenol A, which is used on the inside of packaging you know, to uh, uh, keep cans from uh, spoiling. Uh, as an example, and it's in it's in the um, thermal paper uh, at Target. You know that uh, that we you know print our um, receipts on. So these compounds are almost everywhere, and so she was the first one to you know associate DDT with uh, increased cancer risk and also changes in fertility. Um, you know we know that you know fertility is going down in humans. It's also going down in animals all over the planet. You know we've got an alligator problem. Not too many alligators. We've got too few alligators. You know, the entire, you know, um, uh, Everglades actually, you know, is may may lose its entire alligator population, and it's because of DDT. Because you can actually measure the DDE levels in the alligators, and you know, the fact is that DDT went away from the United States. I mean, we banned it finally in 1972. But you can measure its metabolite today in the alligators, and you can also measure it in pregnant women's urine in the Salinas Valley, which we did. Um, uh, I'm, a, I'm a member of a uh, uh, an academic group out of UC Berkeley that studies a uh, cohort in uh, the Salinas Valley, uh, uh, you know, Steinbeck country, um, called Chamacos, and it's the children and mothers of Salinas. So. 
uh, you know, it's the uh, assessing the health of you know these offspring of women who were exposed to all of these insecticides, pesticides early on in their pregnancy, and what uh, effects this might have long term, and we can see the effects on cognition, we can see the effects on reproduction, we can see the effects on obesity, we can see the effects on puberty, because these compounds are estrogens. Estrogens make really good insecticides because they interfere with the life cycle of the insect. Yeah, but they are poisoning us too. So we learned that. We learned it the hard way. The question is, did we learn it? Well, we learned it about DDT. We didn't learn about anything else. Because right on the heels of you know DDT being banned, then everyone said, well, what are we going to do next? You know, how are we going to fix the spoilage problem, you know, on the next round? Well, and then, you know, uh, uh, Monsanto, you know, came up with, shall we say, the next big thing, and that was glyphosate. And glyphosate has a really, really sordid, you know, history associated with it. And we are really just uncovering, you know, we're just pulling back the, the Band-Aid on the wound uh, of glyphosate even just now. Uh, and so this is an, continues to be an enormous problem. And, you know, it's not just glyphosate. You know, if it were just glyphosate, that would be bad enough. But we've got another one called atrazine. Okay, and that one, Bucktrill, and that one was uh, uh, created by Syngenta. And they both, both uh, Monsanto and Syngenta, you know, claimed on a stack of Bibles that this stuff was safe. Yeah, but they've been paying out uh, court cases, you know, for cancer, uh, uh, you know, in both, both here and in Europe. Uh, uh, not admitting wrongdoing, by the way. They're all settled, you know, except for the case in... Um, in uh, uh, 2018, uh, where a, um, uh, a gardener at a school ended up uh, uh, suing uh, for his uh, lymphoma, non-Hodge lymphoma, and uh, won $280 million. So that sort of got um, uh, Monsanto's attention. Actually, Bayer ended up buying Monsanto, and we can talk about the whys and wherefores of why they would have done that. But um, they've now... Uh, uh, created a fund where they uh, uh, have put ten billion dollars into uh, glyphosate uh, 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 class action lawsuits. So, if that's the case, you know how did these compounds get on the market in the first place? And the answer is because nobody did the studies. That's how. And that's something you you alluded to in metabolical and in this conversation, the grass list, where some of these. <laughs> Some of these chemicals or compounds, things, these obesogens that make it into food production in some way, shape, or form, just sort of make it onto the grass list and there isn't really any diligence. And that, and then they're there and they're just okay. accepted as safe. So 72 is when DDT was banned. And around the corner from that, 1974, our good friends Monsanto, and by good friends, I mean it colloquially, uh, Monsanto comes out with Roundup 1974. And that ended up being this, this pesticide that, or herbicide, I should say, that um, ended up leading to super weeds, leading to all of these 
um, problems. And we'll see from what you're seeing right now with your research and obesogens, how long it takes for something like DDT to actually get <laughs> out of the system. It's, it's there. And we don't know with Roundup how long this will last, but no, fast exactly. forward to 96, when we started to have Roundup ready, right? And they had right. soybeans. And that's a whole different issue as far as seed saving and pushing monoculture on farmers and like we can we can touch on that but it's more the importance of things take a really long time to get out of the system and we know that there was collusion and corruption with some of the um the awareness that monsanto had internally towards the health implications of this product but they kept pushing it out to market and so that has led to some very serious considerations for um even now what we're seeing with topsoil where people go our topsoil is kind of dying and we should think about regenerative farming like there are so many issues aside from health you're absolutely right This is Dr. Casey Means, co-founder and chief medical officer of Levels. If you've heard me talk on other podcasts before, you know that I believe that tracking your glucose and optimizing your metabolic health is really the ultimate life hack. We know that cravings, mood instability and energy levels and weight are all tied to our blood sugar levels. And of course, all the downstream chronic diseases that are related to blood sugar are things that we can really greatly improve our chances of avoiding if we keep our blood sugar in a healthy and stable level throughout our lifetime. So I've been using CGM now on and off for the past four years since we started Levels. And I have learned so much about my diet and my health. I've learned the simple swaps that keep my blood sugar stable, like flax crackers instead of wheat-based crackers. I've learned which fruits work best for my blood sugar. Like I do really well with pears and apples and oranges and berries, but grapes seem to spike my blood sugar off the chart. I'm also a notorious night owl, and I've really learned with using Levels if I get to bed at a reasonable hour and get good quality sleep, my blood sugar levels are so much better. And that has been so motivating for me on my health journey. It's also been helpful for me in terms of keeping my weight at a stable level much more effortlessly than it has been in the past. So you can sign up for levels at levels.link slash podcast. Now let's get back to this episode. People think topsoil is just dirt, and it is not, okay? There's a difference between soil and dirt, all right? Yes, they're both um, uh, ground, <laughs> but, but they are not the same, okay? You cannot grow a plant in dirt. You can grow a plant in soil, but you can grow a plant in dirt if you spray nitrogen on it, fixed nitrogen. Okay, in the form of ammonium nitrate, you know, fertilizer, if you know, and 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 add a you know few extra you know things like Miracle Grow. Okay, so you can take dirt and you know make it uh, productive by throwing Miracle Grow on it. That's true. You can do that. The question is, is the plant that grows in soil the same as the plant that grows in dirt with Miracle Grow? That's the question. And the answer is no, it's not. All right? We think it is. Okay, the food industry acts like it is, but it's not. 
And the reason is because soil is alive. Soil has bacteria, viruses, fungi, mushrooms, <laughs> fungi that make stuff, okay, and actually contribute to the vitality of that uh, uh, of that soil that allow for uh, the plants that grow to be able to create the uh, 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 various chemicals that they need for their survival, that they need for their defense against, you know, locusts and, and, and you know, ticks and, and, and you know, we bull weevils and what have you also, uh, in order to fend off, you know, foreign invaders and also to create the various uh, nutritive compounds that basically help us, you know, which we call vitamins or, you know, flavonoids or various things. So the bottom line is we get all of these essential nutrients from primarily plants. That's why plants are important. And, you know, we need those uh, 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 chemicals. Okay, they are essential. We can't make them. We have to consume them. And they're basically made by what's in the soil. Well, yeah, but the dirt doesn't have that. Okay, the dirt doesn't have all of those things. What it does is it sprays the various chemicals that the plant ultimately needs, but it doesn't actually then produce the things that we want the, that plant to produce. So that plant is essentially nutritionally deficient because it didn't have what it needed to create the chemicals it required for its survival. So, you know, bottom line is, uh, you know, processed um, uh, plant production is not the same as uh, regenerative farming, where you're basically growing uh, uh, stuff in, 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 in soil that works. So uh, this is, you know, part of the problem. It means that, you know, our current uh, processed plant production in the United States is deficient. It's deficient nutritionally, and it's unbelievably uh, 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 problematic in terms of climate change. So let's talk about climate change real quick, because we have many other things to talk about. But climate change is due to greenhouse gases entering the atmosphere, no argument. The question is, where are those greenhouse gases coming from? The overwhelming majority is coming from industrial petroleum use rather than from agriculture. But agriculture definitely provides a proportion, and it depends on who you read as to what that proportion is. So I've seen levels as low as 14%. I've seen levels as high as 33%, depending on who you read and depending on exactly what they are calling, you know, the, the, uh, the use, because some of them just talk about the, um, agriculture itself. Some of them are talking about the animals only. Some of them are talking about the plants only. Some of them, uh, add the, um, uh, transporting, you know, into the, uh, equation as well. So, you know, there, there are different numbers as to what percent of climate change is due to agriculture. 
I don't, I don't want to go there. That's a, that's, you know, that's, that's for the statisticians and for, you know, for people who, you know, do spreadsheets better than I do. Here's what I want to say. Everyone blames the cows. Everyone is saying cows make methane and methane contributes to climate change. Well, methane does contribute to climate change. I'm not arguing that. That is true. The question is, where's the methane coming from? And it turns out that most of the methane is actually still coming from petroleum, not from cows. Yes, cows do make methane. It's true. Cows have always made methane. Okay. All you have to do is go to a cow farm and you'll, you'll know pretty quick <laughs> that cows make methane. It's true. They do. The question is, how much? In 1968, there were more cows in the United States than there are today because of, you know, changes in meat consumption and changes in, you know, uh, current food processing. There were, there were actually more head of cattle then than there are now by 20%. Yet the entire cow, um, uh, uh, mass, if you will, the entire you know herd of cows in the United States produced a total of 14 teragrams of, um, of methane per year. Now, that's a lot of methane. I'm not arguing. Okay. A teragram is a Golden Gate Bridge. All right. That's, that's the set. So 14 Golden Gate Bridges. All right. But today, there are fewer heads of cattle, but those cattle are producing 74 teragrams of methane, 74 Golden Gate Bridges. So they are actually producing six times the amount of methane per cow than they were back in 1968. So it is true that the cows are making the methane. The question is, how come they're making so much more methane today than they were back then? And if we got rid of those, you know, that six times uh, amount, Okay, could we actually like make a difference? And the answer is yes, we could. So the, then why are they making six times the amount? And the answer to that is antibiotics. We are uh, injecting all of those cattle with antibiotics. And the reason we're doing that is because these cows back in 1968, they were basically grown, they were being raised on farms. Okay, and the farms had alfalfa and the farms had clover and the farms had grass and that's what these cows ate okay and they got the essential nutrients that they needed in order to stave off infection from the various uh and sundry uh uh plant products that they were uh that was available to them on the farm well today those cows are not on the farm they've been moved They've been moved to something called a CAFO, C-A-F-O, Concentrated Animal Feeding Operation. And they're all throughout Nebraska and Kansas and Oklahoma. Okay, that's where these CAFOs are. And these CAFOs basically, you know, and you've seen, you know, pictures of them. You know, there's there's no place for the cow to roam. There's no place for the cow to obtain food other than what is provided to them by the ranchers. And that happens to be corn that's shipped in from Iowa. All right. And the reason that this happened was because back in 1971, Earl Butts 
basically said, we have to make food cheap. And in order to do that, we have to uh, create monoculture because that, you know, economies of scale. And that's ultimately, you know, what changed, you know, the, the farm culture in, uh, in America. And so we moved the cows to Kansas. We moved all the corn to Iowa. So now there's no manure, you know, to, to, uh, to uh, carbon fix the, the, the soil in Iowa. So you have to spray the ammonium nitrate, in, uh, which creates nitric oxide, nitrous, sorry, nitrous oxide, which is way more heat trapping than uh, methane ever was. All right. And you've got all the cows in the, um, in, in, on the CAFOs who have to receive the antibiotics because they're not getting the essential nutrients they need in order to maintain their uh, ability to stave off infection. And so what that's done is those antibiotics have basically killed the cow's intestine. And so what moves in instead, you know, nature abhors a vacuum. So the methanogens, which are resistant to those antibiotics, they've moved in. And that's why the cows are making six times the amount of methane, because the methanogens have taken over. Could we fix that? Could we undo that? And the answer is, if the cows ate what was on the farm, yeah. Well, how are you going to do that? <laughs> Put them back on the farm. Well, that's regenerative farming. That's what mm -hmm. we're talking about. Okay. Mm -hmm. Where we carbon fix the, the old way, the right way, the way that made sense for, you know, thousands of years, you know, since the advent of the concept of agriculture and undo this, you know, food processing that's gone on. So, yes, it is the insecticides, but it's also, you know, the method of food production that we have undertaken in the United States. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so it, you talk about that lots where the, it's the, let's play both sides of it. <clears throat> There's the principal agent problem because in one sense, so Earl Butts is involved in instilling these incentives for monoculture and we focus on quantity, quantity, quantity. And right. like, there's food. We're just going to call this like categorically food, whether or not it is nutritious, we will leave that out. But categorically, there's this thing called food and there's a whole bunch of it. And so everyone can sort of check a box and be like, we've done well. But then the long term implications are, well, you're taking away all the symbiosis you get in this ecosystem of having multiple types of plants all living together, animals grazing on that land, cattle putting carbon back into the soil to get to get all of the organisms and to get all the bacteria growing where you have a healthy ecosystem. And so monoculture produced a ton of quantity. Amazing. Like, cool. We fed a bunch of people. But the downside is the quality went down so much that the, the health implications from this food, this category, we're now seeing the effects of it years and years later, and it's sure. not something that is as easy to fix because people say, well, we would love to get back into regenerative farming, but it's too hard or it's like the, everything becomes excuses. And so then we just keep focusing and going down the path of monoculture. And we're, we're really seeing it's got detrimental effects to the food production system. I don't look, you, you're not old enough to remember this, Ben. Okay. But I am unfortunately. But I remember this. Okay. Once upon a time, we paid farmers not to grow certain crops. 
take. And we did it for two reasons. One reason was because we didn't want to glut because that maintained higher prices when you know there was lower uh, availability. And the second reason was because that allowed uh, farmers to uh, take some of their land to lie fallow so that the soil could be regenerated. Okay, so that you could end up with an improved topsoil layer, right? That's how we managed farming back in the 1960s. And it worked, except food prices were high. And they were artificially high to some extent, right? And they were also high because we were starting to subsidize corn, wheat, soy, sugar, which meant that all the other items basically were taxed because if you're subsidizing something, that means you got to tax everything else in order to make book. All right. So we already had a problem in terms of, you know, uh, where the, where the money was being allocated. All right. But in 1971, you know, Richard Nixon in his infinite wisdom, and I put that in quotes, um, quote, colloquially, as you put it, uh, you know, he, uh, realized that fluctuating food prices cause political unrest. And he had a whole lot of political unrest to deal with, as you might remember. Uh, and so, you know, make food cheap, you know, became his, uh, you know, watchword and his contribution to Johnson's war on poverty. You know, and it was, you know, during uh, the Nixon years that we developed WIC. You know, it was then during the Nixon years that, you know, the National School Lunch Program, uh, you know, expanded, didn't start, but it's expanded. The, the goal was put something in people's bellies because that was better than starvation. And anything counted. And the question is, was that a good idea? Well, the whole country thought it was a good idea until it wasn't. And now, you know, we're basically paying for the, you know, the downside of that, you know, uh, alter, uh, you know, alteration in policy. You know, the, the farmers today, the ones that are still around, will say this was a great policy because they're still around. You know how many uh, small farmers got knocked out of the uh, out, out of the box because of it? You know, because uh, it was all about monoculture and only the big guys could play. And that's what Earl Butts said was, you know. Um, uh, row to row, furrow to furrow, get bigger, get out. So, you know, this worked for a select few uh, farmers. And that's why, you know, there are very few uh, private farms now in, uh, in, in America's heartland. They've all gone, you know, they've all gone away. And in the process, you know, we've turned soil into dirt. And what the only way to make it productive is to spray nitrogen fertilizer on it. And, you know, now you've got the whole vicious cycle going. So how do you fix that? How do you fix that? And the answer is you have to make food better. And you can't make food better in dirt. Yeah, and that's the, the, the principal agent problem and all the moral hazard that comes with this is multi-tiered. So in one sense, there there are the, uh, we'll say the producers, a lot of the producers don't own their land. Right. So their incentive is to just 
produce. They're not incentivized to actually like take care of the land because hypothetically, let's just use an example. Someone assume that switching costs are easy. Like you can just like get up and transplant your, your food production to another piece of land. Assume it was easy. They are not incentivized because they're not vertically integrated. They're not incentivized to actually do anything or to take care of the land. So that's one consideration for principal agent. And then the other is when we start to think about the incentives uh, from subsidies perspective, from a monoculture perspective, principal agent having to do with the um, downstream consumer. The producer is incentivized to focus on profits over environment, profits over uh, doing right for long-term health, like profits over, and it just keeps going. And so then you get back into these things. And we've talked about some of the um, some of the internal collusion that happens either between these companies or between um, independent agents that are acting <laughs> sort of between um, different parts of the process. And it leads to a lot of complications. It's, we're, we're realizing now, but you, I mean, you put it so well in Metabolical where... <laughs> If we focused, if we went upstream in food production, it's a fraction to like, I don't want to say fix because you can't just snap your fingers and fix, but to address, it's a fraction of the cost of everything that we pay in the healthcare system right now. That's right. Uh, ultimately, people see these as two separate silos. They see agriculture as one silo. They see health as a completely separate silo. They are not. Okay. That is, they are two subsets, you know, of one silo. And if you combine those two silos together in, you know, on a spreadsheet, you would recognize that the current uh, attempts to try to uh, uh, rob Peter at the uh, agricultural level, okay, we're paying Paul at the healthcare level, okay? And, you know, the, 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 the farmers, you know, are not interested in the healthcare side. The healthcare side is not interested in the agricultural side. They don't even understand how food ultimately impacts health. They they only know that lack of food impacts health. You know, they don't see that the food has become toxic. You know, so that's the question I actually posed to the Director General of the Food and Agriculture Organization, uh, which is part of the um, WHO, part of uh, the UN. Uh, uh, Jose uh, Gonzalez de Silva uh, back in 2017 at a meeting. I said, which is worse? Neither is better, but which is worse? No food or bad food? And he didn't have an answer. And that's right. <laughs> he didn't have an answer. You know, the obvious, the, the obvious answer would be no food, you know, because no food starts wars, right? Well, wars have an end. All right, and then the no food stops being a problem. And I'm not saying that we should all go to war. What I'm saying is bad food. The problem is insidious. It's like frog boil. You know, we know what's happening, and so things, you know, terrible things start happening, and you don't even realize that that's the reason for it. And ultimately, it ends up costing way more in terms of lives. And in terms of uh, uh, economy, uh, and in terms of you know healthcare expenditures, and it's breaking the bank 
on virtually every developed and developing country now taking care of chronic metabolic disease that came because of our lousy food. And then, of course, we have the, you know, the, the uh, social determinant of health. You know, the fact of the matter is that rich people can afford the better food and the poor people can't. And then, so that's creating the social inequities that are actually tearing the country apart at the seams. So bad food might actually be worse. Mm-hmm. It, it's interesting, too, if we think about the macro, macroeconomic considerations around a company being incentivized to make money on both sides. So let's use one example and we'll try it. We'll, we will, I don't want to say try it. We will remain as neutral as possible, but okay. let's play out the scenario. So <clears throat> we're Bayer, we own Monsanto and we're incentivized to grow a ton of food, but we're incentivized to make a ton of money in pharmaceuticals because we do both. We're, we, we, it, we're incentivized to, I don't want to say that anyone is consciously trying to make people sick, but you know that the thing that you do that helps to get more people sick, you're making money on both ends. And so like you're kind of caught in this dilemma where the worse you can do in the food production system, and I'm speaking very hyperbolically about this, the better off you do in the pharmaceutical so like you just want it all to happen because you're going to when you talk about profits and like let's take the ramp one step further. You inherited, you acquired a company, you inherited <laughs> lawsuits in perpetuity in the billions of dollars. Right. What do you do? Right. They must have thought that it was a better, a, a good trade. You know, they obviously, you know, if if, if they had thought that those billions of dollars were going to actually cut into their profits. They wouldn't have taken on the purchase of Monsanto, would they have? So obviously, they you know they analyzed this and decided you know there was still more money to be made. And you're absolutely right. Bayer was a chemical company. Bayer was a you know medicine company. It wasn't a food company, but now it's a food company. So you're right. Now they've got food and medicine. Well, guess what? There's another company that's food and medicine now too, Nestle. Nestle was always a food company. Well, now they're going into diabetes drugs. So what's the conflict of interest there? What's the conflict of interest for both of those? That, you know, that's not moral hazard. That's immoral hazard because you're creating the, 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 uh, the, the market you know, to basically benefit off other people's misfortune. Mm-hmm. And we've got DuPont as well. So DuPont, again, traditionally a chemical company playing in different parts of the food system, all of the issues with PFOA and uh, Teflon. But in 2019, spun off a company called Corteva that is in the egg game. Mm -hmm. Very much a seed company and seed and chemical, seed and fertilizer. But again, it's like having all of these subsidiary arms where you are traditionally a chemical company or you're traditionally like you're not playing in the space, but you're getting involved in the space. This is where it gets to be very, very challenging. And as a consumer, as you said before, it's it's one of those things where we don't know, like we can say eat real food all you want, but when you think you're doing well and you're eating real food and you don't realize that your food has 
things like pesticides in it. Or, and it's not all food, but it's just it's very hard to get away from some of these considerations in the food system because it's so deeply ingrained. Well, this isn't a new concept. You know, the fact of the matter is the tobacco industry did this, you know, back in the 1980s and 90s, you know, um, uh, Altria, you know, be, uh, you know, is what Philip Morris morphed into, you know, and they owned Kraft and General Foods and RJR, you know, Reynolds uh, owned Nabisco. Um, they got into the food business. You know, they were selling tobacco, but they were also selling food. Now, why was that? And the answer was because people started to stop smoking. All right. And the thing is, when you stop smoking, what do you do? You start eating because that addiction pathway is still lit up. Okay. And people will tell you, you know, that's one of the reasons people continue to smoke was to keep their weight down. Right? And as soon as they stopped smoking, they started eating. So why wouldn't they want to be in on that? You know, so the, this concept, you know, they, the, uh, uh, the industry calls it diversification, but you know, you have to really look askance at, you know, when a company is actually, you know, basically playing both ends. Uh, you know, the, the, there, there's definitely immoral hazard to be to be seen there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it gets it gets very challenging. So let, let's go into the idea of what can people do, right? Like we've highlighted that there are challenges, there are things that we do not see and will not know are happening within the food production system. There are some things that we can avoid. And there are some things that are a lot harder to avoid. So when thinking about giving people guidance or some goalposts for how they can think about accessing and eating real food, like we'll agree all day that like, just don't eat Twinkies, don't eat things that are just like inherently bad. But when you think you're eating um, certain foods that uh, let's say <clears throat> things like spinach that grow on the ground and would be uh, the closest possible food to getting things like pesticides, right? It's a lot different than corn that comes in, corn for what it is, but it still is, it comes in a wrapper. Like it's wrapped up in leaves. So it's going to be, right. uh, there'll be some mitigation against pesticides being directly hitting, like directly hitting, whether or not they're grown in fertilizers that are like in the actual vegetable is different. But what can people do? What are some takeaways they can have or some way, maybe some frameworks, some heuristics they can have about thinking about real food and what they consume and maybe questioning some of the things that I know you talk a lot about beef where it's just like the thing that looks great on the shelf that tastes really good is actually full of omega-6 and probably not what we should be eating because right. of being corn fed. All right. So the, the, the short answer, Ben, is the consumer is in the dark. And they're in the dark for many reasons, okay? The f because the food industry wants them to be in the dark. They don't want them to know what's going on. They don't want to actually have to list what, what's going on with the food. And unfortunately, the U.S. government makes that easy for them because the food label, the nutrition facts label, is useless. And the reason is because the nutrition facts label tells you what's in the food. It doesn't tell you what's been done to the food. Does it say anywhere on a nutrition facts label the level of pesticides that are in that uh, in that box or in that uh, 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 package or in that jar? No. All right. Would you like to know? 
I think so. I think people would like to know, but it's not listed. Why is it not listed? Because then nobody buy it. <laughs> so, you know, so the uh, government said, we're not going to list those because that's not what's in the food. Actually, it is what's in the foods, but, but it's really been what's been done to the food. And that's key. All right. So uh, this is part of the problem is that the government's made it very easy for the food industry to, shall we say, you know, play three card Monty with us, you know, hide, hide, hide the ball. And, you know, are there ways to fix that? Well, fixing the nutrition facts label would be a very good start, but then you'd have basically have to tell people what's been done to the food. And that's not even on the table right now, even though that's what I say needs to happen. That's what I said in Metabolical is, the, you know, the call to, you know, actually fix the food label so that people, consumers can be um, apprised properly. An example of this was what happened with Prop 65 here in California, you know, which was basically all about GMOs and, you know, ultimately got voted down. And, you know, that's because the food industry made this huge push. You know, that basically, you know, this was unnecessary. And well, it actually is necessary. Um, you know, but that's, you know, that, that the, the food industry doesn't want to go there for, for mm -hmm. obvious reasons. All right. What else can we do? Well, um, there are now uh, organizations like, for instance, the Environmental Working Group you know, that are quantitating this for you. But, you know, it's kind of hard to carry an environmental working group, you know, uh, uh, thing, you know, a, you know, book practically in your back pocket. I mean, you know, yes, it's online, but, you know, you have to subscribe to it. Uh, you know, um, a, a company that I am chief medical officer of called Perfect is um, uh, trying to basically help people in the grocery store by, you know, letting you basically get the barcode uh, off the thing. And it will actually tell you not just what's in the food, because that you can read on the side, but what's been done to the food so that there ultimately will be ways to do this. And um, ultimately, uh, I'm working with a food procurement service called Fugle that will actually let you put in what you want and with filters that basically will filter out all the stuff in the store that you don't want and only purchase the stuff you do. And actually, we're trying to get insurers to pay for that because that will convey health rather than convey disease. And so, you know, food as medicine, you know, but unfortunately, food can also be poison. Well, the insurer doesn't want to pay for the poison. They only want to pay for the medicine. So, you know, that has to be then be determined by a an independent third party, which is what Fugle would be. So, there are potential ways of doing it, but ultimately, you know, the consumer is in the dark. And, you know, until consumers demand better, they will continue to be in the dark. And that's why education is so important, is ultimately not because you can affect one person at a time. That ain't going to work. Okay. What you have to do is affect one congressman at a time. All right. When we get enough congressmen on board, the problem, of course, is that 338 out of 535 congressmen today take money from the food industry to keep things exactly the way they are. And this is a 
um, uh, an organization called ALEC or ALEC, A L E C, the American Legislative Exchange Council. It's a bill mill that basically, you know, is paid for by big oil, big pharma, and big ag. Uh, you know, big pharma. Uh, so, you know, they want things to stay the same. All four of those, by the way, are guilty of immoral hazard. That's why they want things to stay the same. So this is the, you know, shall we say the, 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 um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? This is the problem in our society today is, you know, the, the, uh, corporate environment that wants to basically make money off the backs of the uh, of the electorate and keep them in the dark and keep them basically um, placated and and uh, and narcotized, uh, you know, with with lack of knowledge. And of course, that's what we're trying to fix right now. So when people are, there are certain principles. People are grocery shopping. We talk about real food. That stay. stay away from the aisles where something is highly, highly processed, certain right. things that come in, everything that comes in a package is, pro I mean, it is almost all food is processed in some way because if if the definition of processing is like taking it from the tree, taking yeah, an I mean, apple from the tree. Yeah, basically, unless you picked it yourself, it's processed. I mean, it, it goes that, 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 that far. All right, there's different levels of processing, to, to be sure. Uh, my uh, colleague and good friend, Carlos Montero, who is a professor of public health at the University of Sao Paulo, Brazil, has uh, introduced and also now verified and you know validated an instrument that he uh, calls the NOVA system. And what it does is instead of telling you uh, what's, you know, wh what's in the food, it basically tells you the degree of processing of the food. And there are four classes of processing. And the best way to explain this would be uh, with an apple. Okay. So class one, according to Carlos, would be an apple. Class two would be apple slices in a package. Class three would be applesauce, sweetened applesauce. Class four would be an apple pie. They're all apples, but they're not. <laughs> and they all contribute different levels of health versus disease. Even though the prevailing ingredient is apples. In fact, by the time you get to apple pie, the prevailing ingredient is not apples. And that's the point. So when you start mixing ingredients, you get into ultra-processing. And there are, you know, ways to figure out what's what. And what he's shown with a set of very elegant stu epidemiologic studies in Europe, in uh, now in South America, now even in the United States, he has shown that the disease is in that class four. The amount of food you eat in that class four is what contributes to cardiac disease, diabetes. Um, cancer, all cause mortality. The other uh, classes, classes one, two, and three, actually seem relatively devoid. The, you know, foods from those basically the same level as the general population. It's that class four, that ultra processed food category. But those are the foods that are marketed heavily. Those are the foods that have a logo. 
Those are the foods that have to be avoided. Those are the foods on the shelves, you know, rather than in the uh, uh, crisper or you know uh, refrigerator section of the of the supermarket. So, you know, people say walk around the edge of the supermarket. Yeah, that's right. I mean, because the class four foods are shelf stable because they have been stripped of their fiber and they've had preservatives added. The primary one uh, that of consequence is sugar, but all the other you know, uh, preservatives as well, including emulsifiers and, you know, um, uh, potassium bromate and all sorts, you know, I mean, whole, whole, you know, BHA, BHT, et cetera. Uh, you know, these are all on the shelves. They're not in the uh, refrigerator sections of the supermarket. Yeah, the class four, that's where branding comes in. You're being marketed Absolutely. or sold to. So it's, we, we know we that it's very difficult from, summarizing what we've talked about it's very difficult to escape a lot of these obesogens they don't they're around us everywhere and that's you and casey had a great conversation about that but when it comes to obesogens related to agriculture and upstream food production it's very hard to avoid them but if people can have a mental model that is eat more in this idea of class one you're, it's completely different than going class four. And so if you can start to make some of these choices, and then maybe the other thing is like, if you see an apple the size of a basketball, like maybe question if that, like question whether or not that is uh, an apple you should consider eating, right? If you start to think about things like that. Another, we, we thing, another thing you can do is look at color, like for tomatoes, Okay. Tomatoes, for instance, have a chemical in them called lycopene, which has gotten some notoriety because it's supposed to help vision, you know, especially as you get older. All right. Well, only the red, red tomatoes have lycopene. The, you know, shall we say orangey tomatoes tend to be much larger. So people tend to like to buy those because they look, you know, bigger, juicier, healthier. They're actually relatively devoid of lycopene and you know they've been bred out to be that way in fact a lot of the nutrients that we want out of our produce don't taste very good the polyphenols the flavonoids the nucleic acids etc you know the the choline etc they don't taste very good they actually can provide some off notes so a lot of the growers have actually bred various uh, uh, strains of, uh, of different produce to be devoid of those, to have more sugar in them, to be sweeter, to actually hide those notes. And in the process, these become less nutritionally valuable. So there is that process going on as well. And that requires, unfortunately, a re-educated palate. And that's something that really does have to be done at an individual basis. You know, there's no sort of government program to re-educate the palate, as it were. You know, people just need to understand that, you know, certain foods are supposed to taste a certain way. And if you've never tasted, you know, a real tomato, you might not know that what a real tomato tastes like. And, you know, you might opt for the crap, you know, your entire life. Brussels sprouts are meant to be 
bitter, not sweet. Indeed. So if you're if you're eating Brussels sprouts that taste like raisins, you're probably on the wrong track. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So that's okay. so that's yet another uh, layer of this, and that that you know really does require you know some shall we say some intensive training on the part of each individual person on the planet. Good luck to us. Mm-hmm.